Hey, everybody. A quick note before the show. I have just finished reading, I mean, literally about an hour ago, I have just finished reading a new novel by former Elder Sign guest host, Sun Yi Dean, and I really love this book, and I think that you will too, so I want to tell you a little bit about it. The book is called The Book Eaters, and, uh, well, is exactly what it says on the box there. It is about people who eat books. The story is set in the real world, our world, but the speculative element is that there is a hidden society, a secret society of people who look like humans, but aren't. And the fact that they consume books instead of pizza is really just one part of what makes them different from the rest of us. And getting a chance to explore this really evocative, really imaginative world that Dean has constructed, this was a huge part of the fun for me. Thematically, the book is an awesome exploration of the fairy tales that we give to children, and then also the fantasy literature that has grown out of that fairy tale tradition. And let me read a, a few lines to you, just to give you a taste, a little tease. They were princesses, of a kind, and this was how princesses lived. Safe in towers, married to men who competed for them, one way or another. Even in the happiest fairy tales, princesses did not usually have much choice. They were prizes to be won or given away, and there was no other context in which she could understand life. And if that passage grips you the way that it gripped me, I hope you'll do yourself a favor and pick up a copy of The Book Eaters by Sonia Dean. To make that easy for you, I have put a link in the show notes, but of course, you'll also be able to find this book at your local shop. Again, that is The Book Eaters by Sonia Dean. Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we are doing our final recap episode for Chapter 4 of Peace. This episode will be covering pages 262 to 282 in the Orb 2012 edition. Before we begin, though, we want to let you know about yet another Patreon goal that we are really closing in on here. And this is for us as a network to cover some Sherlock Holmes. And specifically, what we're going to do is team up with Brent, my co-host on our Neil Gaiman podcast, Hanging Out with the Dream King. And what we're going to do when we hit this goal is that Brandon and I will cover A Study in Scarlet, which is the very first Sherlock Holmes story. And then Brent and I will cover the final problem, which is the first appearance of Moriarty. And then we're all going to team up in order to cover Neil Gaiman's Cthulhu Mythos Sherlock Holmes story, the classic A Study in Emerald. I'm really excited about this. I love Sherlock Holmes. Wolf loved Sherlock Holmes. You love Sherlock Holmes, Glenn. I think Brent does. I'm not sure. I'm certain he does. Uh, but we have done two of Wolf's home pastiches, one of them on Patreon. My favorite was Slaves of Silver. I loved that story. And I think we had a great time talking about that. It's still on my mind. There's a little bit of Nero Wolf in there, too, because Wolf loves wordplay. So I hope you'll help us hit that goal by joining us on Patreon. I'm really excited for us to hit this goal. Yes, I am too. And I, I think, you know, also Star Trek loves Sherlock Holmes. So there's something for Valerie and I to do here as well. It's not not formally on the goal there, but uh, I think we could find a way to throw that in as a bonus bonus. And we are close to this goal. I mean, the G.K. Chesterton goal is in front of it, but we're 10 people away for, really from, from hitting that goal. And then once we hit that goal, the Chesterton goal, we'd only need another five people to join us. And, and then you get five episodes on Sherlock Holmes on top of it. So really, now's a great time to join us. 
we really do hope you'll join us. We're asking you to join us here. And we understand if you can't. Um, and if you can't join us, we really hope that you'll write a review for us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. But we want you to join us so we can do this Sherlock Holmes series for you because I think we're all really excited to do that. But let's talk about peace here. Last time we left off with Weir sitting in his apartment feeling down, you know, basically in the exact type of situation he'd be in to call Margaret Lorne and, and breathe into the phone. But that's not what he does here. No. And in fact, actually, we, we start this episode with one short section before we get really quite a long one. And then also another short one, which will bring us to the end of the chapter. And so we pick up where we ended last time with we're in his apartment after he's accused Mr. Gold of forging rare books. And there are two things happening in this section, this small section. The biggest is that Weir is about to receive a visitor. And the other is that Weir tells us just a little bit more about what happened with Lois and the hunt for the buried treasure. And let's start with that since it's shorter. And and this is only one paragraph, so I'm just going to read it here and then we can pause and talk about it, uh, though we will get some more hints later. I remembered standing hip deep in the hole, which could actually have been called a ditch or a trench. We had dug in the dry bed of Sugar Creek over the space of two days. My shovel had struck a stone, causing the blade to ring, and in a spot of moonlight I had seen the glint of metal in Lois's hand. I had taken it from her, a little nickeled twenty-five caliber Colt automatic, when she bent down to see what I had found. She had said she had been afraid I would try to keep everything for myself. Right, this recollection, this section of text, comes on the tail end of Weir saying, quote, I felt awful to the visitor who, you know, we're going to meet in a moment. But we have to guess sort of at this point what Weir felt awful about. We know it wasn't about accusing Gold of forging the books, though that is how this guest would hear it. Rather, it seems to me that Weir feels awful about taking the gun away from Lois, who then left town after the event. That's what's suggested by the text, though I don't think that's quite what happened. What we do know is that things have really soured between Lois and Weir. And in a really unexpected way. I mean, I think you were talking last episode, Brandon, about having just a real love of buried treasure stories. And I'm with you here. And certainly there is an element of buried treasure story here, right? A mystery that's found in a 19th century diary that you know you can, you can solve because you pay special attention to the lay of the land and read the clues properly and so on. But this took a turn for the hard-boiled real fast. I mean, like this now is like, I don't know, it's out of double and indemnity or, you know, the big sleep or something like that. Just there's mysteriously a gun and having to take it from somebody. And, you know, two people who seem to be on the same side, not trusting each other. Everyone's worried about the double cross. And uh, it, it was really unexpected. It came out of nowhere. Right. And I just love how this whole thing sets off by the, the shovel hitting stone, which is not a treasure chest. And why would the treasure chest be stone or metal instead of just like a wood, a wooden chest that the shovel would crack through. Uh, I don't know. Lois is clearly on edge and she's brought a gun with her to this, <laughs> to this uh, treasure <laughs> finding event. Yeah. The sound you're listening for is a thud or a crack, not a ring, right? right. You know? But uh, I don't know. It's not like you and I've ever gone out and hunted for buried treasure you know, to, this, to this level. <laughs> right. Not yet. Yeah. <laughs> That's going to be when we, once we start doing Gene Wolfe LARPing, I know a lot of people want to walk around with Terminus Est, but this is yeah. the scene I want to LARP. <laughs> you can be Lois in, in this, uh, in this, when we recreate this scene. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, coming coming to a Gene Wolf con soon. <laughs> but all right, let us uh, continue with this short section. And actually, I'm, I'm I'm not going to stop us at the section break because the scene continues into the next section. But also just because. Uh, frankly, I want to spend as little time on this topic as we can, this topic that I am about to introduce. And maybe even before we proceed at all, we should be clear to let people know up front that we are about to encounter a middle-aged man having sex with a minor, that that is where this story is going. Let's narrate how we get there. So Weir is in his apartment when the buzzer sounds, and when he asks who's there, he can't really understand what the, the person is saying. I think we all have some experience with this type of system. You know, At least we've seen it on TV at some point. But he does at least know that it's a female voice. And he asks if it's Lois. But when he opens his door, it is not Lois. It is a 16-year-old girl. And this is Sherry Gold, whom we have encountered before at this age. That was back in chapter one. It was in Dr. Van Ness's office. And I am just going to hit the barest of plot points here. Mr. Gold has told his family about Weir's accusation. And of course, he's worried that he might go to jail, he might be sued, but that at any rate, you know, whatever the specifics are, whatever the particulars of how this works out are, his family livelihood might be taken from him. And he's worried about that. And so Sherry is here to dissuade Weir from taking any action, from, from going to the police or you know, telling the defrauded collectors about this. And she takes off her clothes and says, we can make a deal. If you don't tell, I won't. And that's where the break is. And it's really there. This break is really there just so that Wolf doesn't have to narrate the sex. And so when we get into the next section, it's it's really just a brief jump in time. And Weir and Sherry are talking. And she's telling him about her sexual history and also her general philosophy about sex and marriage. I'm just going to gloss over that. But there is a detail that I want to make sure that we at least take stock of before we move on from all of this. And that is that Sherry has discovered that Weir has a gun under his pillow. It's a small gun. In fact, it's a 25 caliber, which, uh, you know, we just encountered with Lois. And when Sherry asks what he's going to do with it, he says, throw it in the river or the bottom drawer of my bureau. And this thought then brings the Weir of our present, the Weir who is writing all of this down for us. It brings him back to the scout knife that has really been the MacGuffin of this whole story, because he realizes now that that's where it is. It's here in this room, in the drawer of his bureau. But he decides not to look for it, decides not to open that drawer, because if it is there, he's actually not going to be any happier than he is now. But if it isn't, then he'll have to begin the search again. But then he thinks that maybe he will look. And this digression ends with the line, I am not sure I have the strength of will to walk from this room without it. And I'm going to break here with a lot of detail from the last four pages really left unnarrated, but certainly a few things for us to talk about before we move on. Yeah, there's a whole lot here to talk about before moving on. We've talked a lot about misdirection as kind of a mode of writing in this text. And I think this section here is really a kind of example of it. Weird acts in this totally unconscionable way with Sherry. And that makes us want to look away from the text, but there is information in this section that helps us piece together the background narrative of the novel. And I'll talk about some of that information in a little bit, but I want to talk about my immediate response to reading this section, even though Glenn, you wanted to blow by it. My immediate response to reading this section is that if like peace were written 
as like a full on modernist novel, we'd have all this information about how, you know, Lois left if she indeed left at all. And, and we're being down on himself. And now he's sleeping with a gun under his pillow and drinking too much. And his life is unraveling. And this bit with Sherry is just the last in a series of terrible mistakes and decisions that are that are going to haunt him for the rest of his life. But we don't get any of that. We've all read that novel a hundred times. Instead, Weir just takes all of this in stride. And so Weir feels to me in this moment as a sort of response to Nabokov's Humbert Humbert, who over-psychologizes his abusive and evil actions, even as he wraps them in gorgeous prose. And that prose in Lolita initially relies on the alliteration of the L sound. And boy, have we seen that in this chapter already. But anyway, there's no attempt on Weir's part to justify or excuse his behavior. He just acted this way and presents it in a totally banal and mundane way. And his lack of hemming and hawing is really more revealing of his character than if he had been even slightly tortured about it or felt the need to excuse it, even as an evil person is worried that he violated a social taboo and will get some blowback. But instead, there's nothing. It's really the same way that the incident with Bobby Black is narrated as well. We we don't really get Weir ever feeling bad about that. We don't get him thinking back on that, perhaps excusing himself as having been only a child, but nonetheless feeling terrible about how that worked out, about how Bobby Black died because Weir pushed him down the stairs in a, a fight on his fifth birthday. We don't get any of that kind of emotion here. It's just a, a simple reporting. Uh, you know, I say simple, but I, you know, it is. It's highly detailed, and of course, all done with beautiful prose. But there, there is no uh, emotion there, and it's the same way that we get these events narrated as well. It's simply a matter of fact. This is something that happened in my life, and and there are no feelings around it that are given to us explicitly. Now, of course, we have really spent ever since the moment we learned that Bobby Black died in this fight, reading much of the story as we're actually trying to grapple with his culpability in that and his feelings about that. But he's not ever explicitly saying anything about it. Same thing here. What we're really seeing is a total and startling lack of ethical judgment, right? Or any type of ethical position being taken on Weir's part. And I think that this is something Wolf has in mind as an investigation of evil. That's not something we're going to talk about, I think, even more in this moment. But we will talk about it, um, you know, as we think about how this novel is a kind of bit of of ethical writing, even though there's a, a void of ethical judgments in the text. There are some other things going on here. And what I want to dwell on briefly next is Weir's response to Sherry when she comes into his apartment. He says this uh, when she comes in the door. Excuse me for not rising. I have suffered a stroke resulting in partial paralysis of one leg. Uh, so this is some time slippage, obviously, some more time slippage, something we've pointed out a lot uh, that is taking place in this chapter. But there is a relationship between Weir's stroke and Sherry Gold. In chapter one, we learned that Weir woke up with a stroke or with symptoms of having had a stroke the day after Sherry Gold died. And we have to wonder if the stress of that news is something that caused the stroke. 
Additionally, Sherry is in the doctor's office or the next cubicle over from Weir in chapter one when he's being examined by Dr. Van Ness. She is 16 when she's at the doctor's. She's the same age she is now in Weir's apartment. And she's got a problem. Or at least she says to Ted Singer something to the effect that she has a problem because Ted Singer's response is, we've all got problems. But Sherry's problem involves her putting on weight. And then she's trying to get Weir's attention. And then we also know in this moment in the doctor's office, Weir is thinking of himself as middle-aged, the same age he is now in this moment with Sherry Weir in his apartment. And Weir is only interested in looking at her body. There are some real interesting threads there. One thing I just want to say is that just in terms of keeping our own timeline straight here, that Weir's stroke is going to come 20 years from this narrative here, 20 years from the moment here when he and Sherry have sex. And so Sherry then would be about 36 at, at, at that point. And so you know, we, we have to wonder you know, what happens in their relationship over the next 20 years. And I think what is being suggested here in the way that you're presenting this information from chapter one again, Brandon, is Sherry has just gotten pregnant from, from this sexual encounter. Right. And, and that doesn't mean it's Weir's child, because we also learn from Sherry when she and Weir are having pillow talk that Sherry is unashamedly interested in sex and what she thinks she can get from having sex with men. Weir's concerns here, though, aren't to say like, hey, you shouldn't be doing this, like, you know, the exact plot of Taxi Driver or something like that. Uh, Weir's more concerned that Sherry talking about sex means you'll get a bad reputation. Um, So, yeah, we think that this part of the story is taking place in the 50s, though Lois uses the term Bobby Soxer to describe Sherry. That term was most commonly used in the 40s. But Lois feels that that term is out of date. She asks Weir if they're still called that. Whatever. Yeah. Glenn, I think the point is that we're both making here. It's likely that Sherry is pregnant. Weir is probably the father since all of this is coming up in his narrative. Um, So at the time of Weir's stroke, it's possible he has a a 20-year-old son. Or doesn't and feels terrible about how that worked out. We just don't have enough information here at this point to speculate about this. And of course, this is the last recap episode we're doing for this chapter. So we're going to have to look to the next chapter, to chapter five, to see if we get any more. But even if we don't, I think that this will be a topic worth revisiting in the context of the entire book in the the final wrap-up episodes. Because I think certainly we are seeing here in chapter four some real darknesses with Weir. We've seen darknesses before, but I think that they've been dialed up a few notches here in this chapter, even if the prose itself is is doing this kind of Lolita thing, as you say, Brandon, where the prose is not emphasizing that. the Even the, the narration is not emphasizing that, but the actions certainly are. Absolutely. And I think Weir might be a sociopath based on what he does next um, with with Sherry, which we'll get to in a minute. But I have two more quick things to say about this uh, this section of text. First, regarding the timeline, not the novel timeline, but the Lois and Weir timeline. When Sherry asks Weir about the gun, he points out that he's had it for weeks. So it is possible that Lois left town between pulling a gun on Weir and Weir showing up at Gold's shop to confront him. The text presents that as though it's like, you know, the next day of that 
treasure hunting weekend, even though we know some time has passed, just the way the text flows, um, it would be easy to believe that it happens rapidly, where it could have been a month or something like that. Second, the pocket knife. This passage is pretty revealing to me. And as the pocket knife is, as you point out, the central MacGuffin of the text, I am going to wait until the final wrap-up episodes to talk about how it plays into my full reading of the novel. But I will say this by way of a hint. Weir is really attached to this object and shows us that there are maybe two other objects in this drawer that he's attached to. And I think that this explicit attachment to objects is um, a kind of a key to unlocking uh, one way of shining a light on this text. And as you imply, Brandon, uh, what exactly happened with Lois is going to have to also be a discussion (laughs) question. I have lots of thoughts and I, I assume you do as well. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's continue with the narrative here. So Weir tells Sherry that he wants to go see her father right now in order to let him know that he is not going to take any kind of action with his knowledge. And so he's just going to give Sherry a ride home and then just say that she persuaded him and leave out all the details. And so that's what we get next. We get the car ride. And along the way, they they talk, and there's actually a lot here in their conversation, but I am going to stick to the family history and also the, the family's religious and ethnic identity. We learn first that Mr. Gold left Germany and then went to England before coming to the United States. In New York, he worked as a furrier for a while, but Sherry offers this only really as an example of one of several types of weird jobs that her father has had, all, of course, while also having to learn the language and learn the customs. Sherry talks also about her family's identity as Jews. Foremost, they do not worship. They don't go to temple or participate in any kind of ceremonies in any formal way. But they don't eat pork. And Sherry mocks this as merely a kind of nod toward an identity that doesn't really carry with it any substance. She also thinks about Jewishness as an ethnic identity, but also along racial lines. And she thinks that she doesn't physiologically appear to be Jewish. In fact, she thinks that she looks Slavic and that this has happened because of intermingling with Russians and Poles. And she seems to lament this. And Brandon, I I found this to be a a strange bit of scientific racism here, really just a, a strange embracement of what essentially amounts to Nazi ideology, even as Nazi ideology is clearly in the immediate background of how her family wound up in America. Right. What's even more strange about this is when we're in this moment is confronted with the question of what he thinks Sherry looks like. I mean, like ethnically speaking, which is the context of this conversation. He says she looks American. And then this, you know, is when Sherry gets super caught up in this. But in chapter one, one of the things that Weir points out about Sherry explicitly is that she has a Jewish face. And what's more, he says, is that it's pretty because Jewish faces aren't supposed to be pretty. So I don't know what's going on here, Glenn. I'm getting pretty frustrated with this book, to be honest with you. Like, I really am at a loss here to explain why these discrepancies are present in the text. This is another uh, garden spade shovel moment for me. 
<laughs> yeah, I think this one probably a little more significant than the uh, the garden spade versus the, the the shovel here, or the mattock versus the the pick. Though I I hear you wanting to fight about it, so we will we will fight about that. But no, this is a pretty serious issue here, right? This question of I mean, the, just the bigger question of what it actually even would mean to look American, right? Like, what does we're mean by that? You know, why does he think one thing and say another? I mean, the contexts are, are very different here. But also, you know, chapter one is also where we had this vision of this world that is populated with much more human physiological diversity than our world actually is. You know, imagine in a kind of high fantasy world uh, in which there are humans with blue skin and orange skin and so on. But we're also envisioning what this is going to look like in the country club you know, in like the 1950s or, or maybe after that, I guess really maybe after the civil rights movement, when whites-only country clubs have to be opened up to people with orange skin and, and so on, that we haven't thought about this in a long time. We have not thought about race or thought about ethnicity really in this story in a long time. But back in the first chapter, we had that, and we also had a huge emphasis on Native Americans. And so it seemed to us at the time that that was going to be a big theme of this book. And it hasn't been. This is really the first time it's come up again since, or certainly the biggest way that it's come up again since. And I share some of your frustration with this, Brandon, in that I'm not sure what it's doing here with nothing in between it. My gut sense at this point is that Wolf is pointing something out about, um, you know, immigration, these great immigrations to America, because we have the Irish and the Chinese and the now like the Jewish immigrations brought up here. And so that I don't know. I mean, I don't know quite what to make with that. But what confuses me the most about this Jewish family here is the way that both Sherry and Weir use the phrase supposed to be Jewish to describe this family. And it's just really confusing. I don't know why the repetition of the phrase supposed to be is used in, you know, like three different occasions in this text with regard to the Jewish family in town. Right. I mean, the, the question that I feel like this raises is supposed by whom, right? And, you know, I think that when people use that uh, phrase or phrases akin to that, what we mean is from our pop culture, uh, right? But I don't know what that pop culture would be in the period of, of Weir's life here, right? Really meaning from the 1920s through, you know, uh, the 1950s, I guess, as we assume that we are now, other than to say that probably not good, right? I think as everyone is aware, that era is the height of anti-Semitism in world history. I mean, it includes the Holocaust, right? So uh, this is definitely a period in which there would be a lot of anti-Semitic rhetoric just around in the pop culture. And that, you know, this seems to have influenced not only the way that we're just passively and uncritically thinks about Jewishness, also the way that Sherry thinks about it, that Sherry has internalized some of these elements of the pop culture as well. Right. It's another example of that kind of double consciousness that we've talked about a lot on Elder Sign, the W.E.B. Du Bois idea, where Du Bois is talking about uh, Black Americans have internalized the way that they are viewed by culture, which then is something they have to 
deal with with their identity, both privately and publicly. And I think I don't, you know, know Wolf's relationship with Du Bois, but I think he's kind of trying to point that out here. I just think it's maybe a little clumsy because we're having a really hard time figuring out what Wolf is doing with with ethnicity in this novel. And certainly, one of the things that Wolf is doing here, right, is is writing a story in the words of the main character of the story, right? And it's it's a main character who we are really coming to realize is not someone to be admired. Right. He's he's evil. I'm willing to say that, you know, he's not wholly evil, but the, he's a way to investigate the nature of evil, I think, as a character. No, I, th- I think that's exactly right. I mean, I was trying to I don't know, d- dance around saying that, I suppose, for some for some reason. But no, that's exactly my point, right? So, so Wolf, from a writing perspective, is needing to be authentic to the character because this is a first person narrative, and you know, if if Wolf is nothing if not a master of an authentic first person voice, and so we're getting that from Weir, and that does though then make it difficult for us to stand outside of that, see the story from a third person perspective to really in, investigate to really interrogate the the scene uh, from something that's you know a more objective viewpoint but i don't think we're we're done with this either i mean we are going to get more about jewish identity in this chapter as well uh, though of course we will eventually get to mr gold but not going to get there just yet uh, because where we're going to continue thinking about jewish identity here this all comes from mrs gold uh, whose first name is sally Sally Gold is English, uh, by which I mean Mr. Gold met her in London after he left Germany and then married her before coming to the United States, uh, though none of that is explicit in their conversation. We do learn as well that she has some kind of university degree, though her husband does not, and that she works in Cashinsville as a, a substitute teacher. At least sometimes she does that. She is really serving in this scene as a, a kind of gatekeeper to get access to Mr. Gold, who is holed up in his study. And she is very talkative, and she makes a comment about gypsies. And to be clear, this is her word. And of course, Wolf himself could not have known at, at this point that the year before he wrote this book, the international Romani community had officially condemned using the name gypsy. So we're going to use Romani here, unless we're quoting the text or discussing Wolf's word choice. Uh, at any rate, Mrs. Gold makes a really interesting speech about how diasporic Jews could have accomplished the same thing in Europe that the Romani people did, uh, but they could have done it even better. And she lists as evidence of this the fact that the Jews and the Romani share many attributes, including dark looks and a culture more sophisticated than that found in medieval Europe. She goes on to say that on top of that, the Jews had the virtue of having provided Europe with its religion without actually being members of that religion. And of course, Jews are the real fortune tellers, because after all, all the famous prophets are Jews. And this is all super interesting, but what really jumps out to me is something that is probably just my own ignorance here, because Mrs. Gold never explains what she means when she says what the gypsies did. And I'm not sure what she's referring to, because everything she then lists is actually the stuff of fiction and largely Victorian British fiction. Yeah, I'm not sure either. I guess this episode is me just saying I'm not sure a lot here, because (laughs) Sally says, this is what Sally says. She says, quote, I sound like a gypsy. And then she says, we could have done that, you know, what the gypsies did. 
And there's no antecedent for this declaration. Uh, so I really hope our listeners, who are often more astute readers than us, can can pick up on what we've missed here, because I'm at a loss. But let's talk about Sally here for a moment. Uh, Sally, the name, is a diminutive form of Sarah, which is a Hebraic name. Um, some have translated it to mean princess, but I think it's more like you know high-class woman or something along those lines. More explicitly than in any other section of the text, Sally here is associated with birds. I mean, we've seen other women associated with bird imagery, but in this section, there are three explicit references to birds. One, with her being described as bird-like, then with her eyeing Weir as if he's a worm, and then with Weir feeling as though he's in an aviary. As I've said, we've seen this bird imagery before, particularly... um, in that dream where like Weir said that he wished he was 25 again, that ends with him finding a dead bird that turns into a paper lantern. You know, in that dream, he's in a garden and walking over hills. And yeah, that's another example of that heaven imagery that we talked about in our last episode. So I wonder just how exactly bird imagery is working throughout this book. In this case, it seems to be primarily about putting Weir in a situation where he feels like prey, uh, which is a reversal of the situation he was in in Weir's shop. And I guess doubly he feels like prey because he's gone to this house just after having sex with these people's teenage daughter to be invited for tea and have a conversation with her father. Well, yes, I think one of the things that might be happening here with this bird imagery, the feeling like prey here, might also go in line with all of the conversation here with Mrs. Gold about the the Romany and their uh, powers, their supernatural powers of discernment. Uh, that is that, you know, I think Mr. Gold perhaps might end up being perfectly oblivious about what has just happened with Weir and Sherry, but that uh, I don't think Mrs. Gold is. That's an excellent point that that I hadn't considered, and, and that might be what she's hinting at, but I think Weir is really bad at, at picking up on social cues and is awkward as uh, he fears Lois Arbuthnot might think of him. Um, there's one more passage I want to point out here before we move on. Uh, Sally clearly admires Lewis, her husband, and she says this about him to Weir. He's a great man, but he won't be recognized until he's been dead a hundred years. And Weir doesn't vocally respond to this to Sally, but he does write this. I wanted to say that I was beginning to think that this was true of all of us, that our lives couldn't be viewed with detachment until they were half forgotten like paintings, which can be seen objectively only when the artists are long dead. But I did not. First of all, this great man business here. We talked, again, a lot about this in the early chapters, particularly chapter one, um, with uh, Glinka's life of the Tsars and Napoleon, Weir's passage about um, you know these men who have great hobbies, who are experts in really small things. That's in chapter two. And then we get this callback to that sort of imagery here. And again, this is just an example of Wolf really tightening up the narrative of the story, I think. Um, but I think it will also be fruitful for us to wonder why in this moment, Weir is thinking about death being the condition of getting an objective view on life or, or why death is even on Weir's mind at all as he's visiting the Golds. 
Well, certainly Gold's whole business is wrapped up in the past. We're going to get some more on that in a little bit, right? But he's he's an antiquarian book dealer, right? And so this idea of time having to pass before anything can really have value, uh, before we can know what matters and what doesn't matter, is, is, I think, intimately actually wrapped up in the business that Gold is in, especially if Gold really is forging <laughs> books. He's making up books. Gold himself is, is inventing what is important and what isn't, and then selling that invention to, to people at a, at a profit. So th- that, that's not necessarily in any way related to, to death, but it is wrapped up in you know, the passage of time and, and judging what's important and who judges what's important and also how we measure whether or not things are important. Are things important because you can sell them to the library at Miskatonic University for $7,000? Is, is that what makes something important, right? Uh, that's the business that gold is in. Right. And, and all this talk of importance just reminds me of the passage we got earlier where uh, Weir says, everything we do is unimportant. It's just that some things are more immediate than others. And that seems to have a direct <laughs> bearing on, on this bit of, of Gold's business. Well, we should continue thinking about Mr. Gold. And uh, that means that uh, we need to go talk about the Venus de Milo. So Weir does now make his way to Mr. Gold's study. And Weir explains to him that he's not going to tell anyone that Gold forges the rare books that he sells. And he does also say that by forging the Boyne Diary, Gold did real harm to him and to Lois, though he doesn't elaborate about what that that harm was. Gold now goes into a lengthy defense of his forgeries that is also something of a history of the profession of being a forger. First, he says that there are and have been a lot of people doing this type of work, and that, in fact, a lot of old books that people accept as genuine are really forgeries. And it's not just books. And and here is where we're going to get Gold's story about the Venus de Milo. And this is a a famous sculpture of Aphrodite. It's from ancient Greece. Uh, De Milo here just means from Milos, which is a a Greek island that in antiquity had a, a pretty large city. This sculpture, the statue, it's dated to the second century BC, which makes it Hellenistic art rather than classical art. And it's in the Louvre in Paris. I have to say it is well worth the long line, but you can also see it all over the internet. Uh, also, like Seven Simpsons episodes. It's it's in pop culture is what I'm saying here, but it is beautiful and worth worth checking out if you ever have the chance to see it in person. At any rate, it was discovered in a cave by some locals in 1820 when Milos was still part of the Ottoman Empire, uh, and also a time when the Ottoman Empire was really just lousy with European archaeologists. A lot of the details of the discovery are murky today, though many also can be corroborated. But at any rate, the sculpture was purchased for the Louvre and it was put on display there in 1821. And so that's the story of the Venus de Milo. But Gold here takes the opportunity to fill in some of the gaps to explain some of the murky details of the discovery. His claim is that the statue is a forgery. Local people all over the Ottoman Empire were making a killing selling ancient artifacts to European archaeologists and They were full of tricks, and one of them was to break up the artifacts and sell them in pieces for more than the object would have sold for on its own, and therefore making significantly more money. And this was definitely a real practice, and in fact, it is still done today with manuscripts and coin hoards, and that was done here, because the Venus de Milo famously 
doesn't have any arms. And Gold's story is that the locals broke them off in order to increase their profit for the find. Gold also claims that this was the moment when archaeologists finally decided to put their foot down about this practice and to really start negotiating for objects in lots rather than to negotiate for individual pieces. And so they refused to buy the arms. Now, they thought that the locals were bluffing when they said that they would throw the arms into the ocean if the archaeologists wouldn't buy them separately, but they weren't, and so that is what happened to them. So anyway, breaking up the objects was one trick, but another trick was simply to forge fraudulent objects, and Gold believes that this was the case with the Venus de Milo. Now, I should clarify that everything Gold says about the arms is something that he claims to know from a source, and he claims that this is actually well-known, it's just not well-publicized because it's bad PR. But here, he is just speculating that the Venus de Milo was carved in 1820, not 150 BC, and this speculation is really just based on circumstantial evidence. We don't have to rehash all of that here, but we definitely are going to want to do that in the discussion for this chapter, and I think that we're also going to need to revisit the fifth head of Cerberus when we do. Yeah, this this book really needs to be put in conversation with the fifth head of Cerberus, and even with, you know, Wolf's later masterpiece, the book of the the new sun. But uh, it's this bit about the Venus de Milo in particular that brings me pause about what Weir reads about hell and marvels in science. In the passage about hell, there there's a real focus on like the number of limbs a person has, you know, also whether their face is animalistic, but the limb business here is put directly in conversation with the Venus de Milo. And as I mentioned before, we also have met a woman without arms in the text who was kind of a heroic figure in our reading of that story at the time. She was forging a way forward for herself and her immediate family by being in the circus, by using her, uh, disability or abnormality to her advantage. And we've also mentioned, you know, just as an aside, the there was a statue of Venus uh, in the background of Watteau's painting Le Mesitaine that was hanging in Milicek's. And so the reason why this brings me pause about hell is that nobody would think that the Venus de Milo... <laughs> would be a symbol of hell, right? I mean, it's just, it's just not, it's just not, uh, you know, kind of in our cultural vocabulary to place it there. Gold also points out that the Venus was likely holding an apple and that this was intended by the forger, the sculptor, to have the statue confused with Eve. And of course, by holding the apple, Venus would be more recognizable as Aphrodite. Glenn, you pointed out that Venus is a, this Venus is a sculpture of Aphrodite, whose symbol is an a- apple. And Aphrodite is the name of the, of the Greek goddess of love, who, as Gold points out, was given this apple by Paris, something that had you know no small effect on the Trojan War. Now, I bring up this apple business because you know, one, this goddess of love is associated with apples. Uh, we read about the smell of apple blossoms earlier, though we didn't read about it out loud, in association with Sherry Gold's hair. But there's also the image of the apple associated with Eve here, representing sin. And finally, the incident with Bobby Black is about rescuing Joe's painting from apples being thrown at it. So all of this to say is that something is going on with apples in this novel, uh, you know, some kind of complex symbolism that I think is maybe 
reflective or indicative of Wolf's interest in, I'll say, like syncretism on the combination of the origin of all these symbols across multiple religious and cosmological systems. One might also say, and forgive me for this, that peace is really a novel about apples and oranges. <laughs> I, I'm ashamed of having laughed at that joke, but actually, I think you just you just caught me off guard. So my my judgment wasn't uh, in full effect. I ask there. you to forgive me in advance, Glenn. So it's it's forgiven, right? That's if you, right, yeah. if you <laughs> ask in advance, you can do no wrong. Yeah, I'm not sure that's how it works, but I'll let it slide. <laughs> I'll let it slide this time. And no, this is a really astute observation. And the apple, of course, also is really important in ancient Greek religion or you know, ancient Greek mythology, as we, we call it sometimes, as being wrapped up in the the judgment of Paris. This is a, a situation in which the goddess Eris, you know, dropped this apple that was labeled as, you know, for the, you know, like the most beautiful and the three goddesses, Hera, Athena, and Aphrodite, you know, fight over it, each claiming that it's, it's for, for them. And it was the, the goddess Eris is, you know, the goddess of, of, strife. And so, you know, we could also see clearly, right, that much of this book, much of peace is a novel about about strife, uh, about suffering, about about human suffering, about life as a form of of suffering. But all right, we have one more forgery that we need to discuss before we come to the end of this section. But first, Gold and Weir wrap up their business about informing the police. Gold thinks that he actually would be okay even if Weir does inform the police, but he recognizes goodwill when his face is rubbed in it, and so he says, thank you. And he also tells Weir that he's going to stop forging rare books, but he also says that he's just saying that because if this ever does go to court, Weir will be able to honestly say that Gold promised he would stop because uh, he's not really going to. But all right, on to the main event here. So as Weir is leaving, he asks Gold about a book in the study, uh, a book that he's, he's picked up to read. And it's in Greek, and its title ought to be translated into English as The Book That Binds the Dead, but is usually rendered as The Book of the Names of the Dead. And when Weir asks if Gold wrote it, Gold makes a speech that I think is worth just reading. Perhaps. To you, I am a fraud, Mr. Weir, an eccentric. To myself, I am an artist, shaping the past instead of the future. I write, yes, my hand moves across the paper, carrying my pen. And there are words, and I try to tell myself they have all come from me. It may be that all mankind, living and dead, has a common unconscious, Mr. Weir. Many great philosophers have thought that. It may also be that more than man takes part in that unconscious. The world shapes itself, I find, very fast to what I write, where I write more than I know. Perhaps all of us who do what I do. This book on my lap, I just wrote it, but you will find it mentioned in a hundred others. A man over in Rhode Island made up the name and it was taken up, you understand. So obviously that sentiment, this idea of the world itself having an unconsciousness, uh, that is going to be some fodder for discussion. But let's carry on with what this book is, because this last line is about H.P. Lovecraft. This book is, it's, it's the Necronomicon. And Gold goes on to describe its provenance in a way that is basically just a, a paraphrase of Lovecraft's very short story, The History of the Necronomicon. Uh, the Wolf has specified and expanded some of the details here. And I will say, as well as an aside, that we have just gone ahead already and done a bonus episode on this Lovecraft story. It's already up on Patreon as this episode is coming out. Uh, this is actually something that I did with Jay Deal, who is a historian of medieval monastics 
monasticism and someone who has done a lot of work with manuscripts. Jay and I have been busy doing a series on the podcast Atas, a series about medievalism in speculative fiction. So I think it just made sense for us to, to do this. And it was really our first time looking at weird fiction together. So if you are interested, you can go check that out on Patreon. We had a lot of fun doing that episode. But at any rate, back to the story here. This book is the Necronomicon. It's all super fun that Wolf is bringing this in here. Wolf even gets a pun in by calling Lovecraft a providential man. Lovecraft was from Providence, and his tombstone says, I am Providence. But there is also a scene happening here. This is not merely fan service. There's serious thematic content for this novel at work here, because this is a book of necromancy, at least the way that Gold has written it. And Weir wonders that there might actually be some danger in letting this loose in the world because people will do harm while trying to perform this magic. And then Gold says, in response, he says that the real worry is that they might succeed. It may not be as easy to hold the dead down as we think. Yeah, it's so strange to me that Weir seems way more concerned about you know, like whether or not the Necronomicon has real magic in it, as opposed to Marvels of Science, uh, where that passage that we are read in Marvels of Science was about summoning angels and devils. But even stranger, Weir's specific concern is about the harm people might do if they try magic and fail. And I wonder, like, then who was the harm being done to in the case of the Necronomicon? Is it to those who are dead? You know, are the dead alive in some sense in, in places beyond dreams? Are they living in planes beyond our own? Is it dangerous for the living to try magic in the sense that like alchemy is magic and its attempts, as we've seen in this novel so far, are a little bit gruesome? It's it's a very strange concern, you know, that raising the dead isn't what we're fears. It's trying to do magic. Well, I think, you know, the context here, of course, right, is that we're feels like he's been harmed by this other forgery, this other made-up book, this other book made up by Gold, right? That whatever Gold might have intended, Lois read this book and said, I'm going to go find this treasure, and then enlisted Weir in it, and we, we know there was a gun involved, and now Lois is no longer present in Cashinsville. So there were real material consequences to the story that Gold made up. And I think that Weir is envisioning something more like that here, you know, and, and probably really envisioning adolescents, teenage boys getting a hold of this book and performing necromantic rituals in, you know, their attics or, I don't know, the basement of the high school or something like that. I mean, now I'm just you know, pitching a Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode, I guess, right? But doing harm that way, maybe hurting people, hurting themselves, trying to draw blood for rituals and that sort of thing. There's a, a writer named John Darniel, who's also the member of a band called the Mountain Goats, who wrote a book called The Wolf in the White Van, which is like ex exactly about this, about a guy who invents a, a play-by-mail role-playing game, kind of loosely based on Conan the Barbarian and two kids get severely injured trying to LARP it rather than just playing it in their living rooms. And part of it's a reflection of this guy's life as he's thinking about the judgment of the court case. Uh, but anyway, yeah, there I, I totally understand that. It's gold statement, though, at the end of this that makes me think magic is real in a sense. We get a lot in this chapter about magic. First of all, we get like a lot of topsy-turvy and upside-down language. But then 
when Weir is talking to Sherry, we also get this presto changeo business. This chapter has a real suffusion with the sense that magic is real and gold at the end here just really brings that home and adds to that sense of, of mystery um, that's kind of been building throughout this chapter. And I want to take a moment then to think about gold's speech. First, you know, one thing I haven't done is point out the similarities between gold's writing practices and Weir's own that's present here. Uh, you know, as Weir's discussed his practices throughout the book and as gold says, he falls asleep writing down dreams all this stuff. But Gold also believes that through his work, he is reshaping the past. And I think Weir is maybe interested in recovering the past, though maybe he too is trying to reshape the past in order to avert, quote, what went wrong, which to Weir is the real question instead of to be or not to be, another Hamlet reference here. Um, but Gold justify his projects by taking sides or taking the side of people like Carl Jung, who posited that our understanding of reality is really caught up in our mutual participation in like fixed primordial archetypes. I don't know, deep realities we all share that are shaping and reshaping our present engagement with our reality, our material surroundings. And and it's this idea here that I think is really a, a core component to this chapter, to understanding what Wolf is doing with this concept of not just a collective unconscious, but also with the ideas of, of archetypes. So we have to ask what we make of these deep fixed archetypes in the face of what this chapter has shown us are, are so many discussions about racial identity, which is about categorization and stereotype. You know, what do we do when we consider that Sherry Gold says that the idea of being Jewish is being washed away? And Wolf, I think, is attempting to understand where the line is between stereotype and archetype, of when an archetype becomes stable and moves into that collection of images in the unconscious. And when a stereotype gets washed away and what the conditions of that are and how any of it works, you know, do we have to rely on looking back on the past to get objectivity as we're wonders? But then there's a wrinkle because this chapter is telling us that the past is forged, literally, but also shaped by those in our present. And so how is objectivity even achievable? These are just some of the questions that are running through my head as I think about <laughs> Gold's speech. And, and the way that it demonstrates so much of what is on Wolf's mind, I think, as he's constructing this novel. I don't have any answers to those questions, by the way, but they're important, I think, to Weir's individual and then also subjective encounter with his reality. I mean, I think the, the phrase that you're looking for here, Brandon, is social construct, right? People's identities, any identity that we can have, really, is a social construct, by which I mean it relies on society deciding that that identity exists, or perhaps even agreeing that that identity exists, and shaping what are the attributes of that identity, what are the requirements of that identity, how do we define that identity. All of these things are social constructs. But so too is the past. The past is a social construct. I mean, certainly there are things that happen in the, the past in some objective way, but we we have no way of accessing that. We can never possibly access that. And so what we think happened in the past is all a, a social construct. It's all the construct of 
people in the present, right? Shaped by uh, people in the past who in their present were shaping the past by thinking about it and writing about it and so on. And I think, you know, that can get real slippery. And this is certainly something that undergraduate history majors, uh, maybe, you know, undergraduates in, in general, have a lot of anxiety about when they, you know, get into a history class and are told up front that we have no idea what happened in the past can't possibly, never will, and that that's not really what we do. Because <laughs> that's not what they have done in high school so far, which is memorize facts for you know a Scantron test. And there's some real anxiety and a real learning curve right, to, to get into the practice of what historians actually do and, and what they're going to be expected to do in a university history classroom. And that, that's really what Wolf is, I think, engaging with here. Right. And he's doing that, but also by evoking Young, he's thinking about whether or not we can even rely on these types of, of philosophies that Gold is using as a justification for these writing projects. He's saying, well, it's all a part of our deep, true roots as human beings. So when I'm making this stuff up, I can't even say I'm making it up because it's a part of our the collective unconscious of the archetypes that shape our ability to even have culture are like grounds of understanding reality or the the veil through which we, uh, I don't know, I don't want to get into philosophical idealism here, but it's the concepts that we use to make sense of the objects and ideas that we encounter in the world. And I think that this is a core part of uh, Wolf's project as a writer is trying to make strange some of these ideas while still relying on ideas like the hero's journey in order to have us as readers confront whether or not we can even call these things real or, or true or whether they're just convenient fictions that we use to shape our reality. And Gold here, I think, is offering up a, a justification here, right? Like a de defense of his actions that I'm not sure he himself really believes. I, I, I think, you know, Gold is a, a nihilist here, really, even in the speech that he makes, right? There's this sense here in which what he's saying is, you know, nothing is real. It's all made up and therefore nothing matters. And I can do whatever I want to sell a book for seven grand to, you know, house and feed and support <laughs> my my family. I mean, he's, there's a real nihilistic approach here, but he's wrapping it up in some fancy prose and, uh, and philosophy here. But really, he's just trying to justify his actions. Right. And, and, you know, maybe particularly he's concerned about the fact that he's got a book bound in human skin and Weir is a little bit concerned about where that skin came from. And he should be, but he's not anymore because... Gold's daughter stopped by Weir's apartment. It's all very dark and icky. Yeah, yeah, it really is. But we have a little bit more to do. Before I move us into the, the final section, though, I also want to circle back to your invocation of the band, The Mountain Goats, Brandon, just to say <laughs> that uh, they've got a great song about Lovecraft. It's called Lovecraft in Brooklyn. And it's, uh, well, it's about exactly what it says in the title. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah, check out, check out John Darnielle. I think uh, many many people who follow either Elder Sign or the Gene Wolfe Literary po Podcast would would find a lot to enjoy in in John Darnielle, but 
I don't know. I'm not here to pitch his books, but um, I liked Wolf in the White Van a lot. Well, I've not read that book. And as you were describing it, Brandon, I thought I would like to. So I don't know, maybe we can find some way to do that as an ATOS episode someday, on top of all the other things we're always saying we're going to do. <laughs> <laughs> but, but all right, there was a, a bit that I left out of this last part of the conversation in Gold's study that we need to take stock of here. So uh, Gold also read to Weir a bit of the text. Uh, in fact, really what he did was sight read his own Greek prose and then translate it into English. And this is what he read. Then, as the Spirit had instructed us, we scattered the ashes to the four winds, and what remained in the cup when the scattering was done, we ate. And that is all we get of the text before we get Weir's thoughts about what a great actor Mr. Gold is. And then the section break. And the next section is just a short story. It's just a short story that has no context. And it is about some people in some kind of pre-modern setting. I mean, maybe it's historical Earth. It might be a fantasy world. Uh, but in any case, it's about them doing some necromancy. And so the last line of chapter four comes from a man who has just been raised from the dead. And the man says, O shades of the unborn years, depart from me and trouble not the day that is mine. And that's how this chapter ends. Uh, but before we go get ready for the discussion episode, let's just talk about what this bit of text even is, because it, it has to be the rest of the passage that Gold read to Weir from his forged Necronomicon, right? I think so. But I think it's also something Weir has written. And, well, you know, why can't it be both? Uh, the, the reason I think Weir has written this is this. The short story is really about a buddy trip and... It's about two people going to dig something up in the sand. That sounds a lot like Lois and Weir's adventure. Uh, but also then there's this mention of the dog star in the story. And, and we just get this line here. At last I heard a whispering, as if many small voices far away were singing or humming. I turned my head to find from whence that sound came, and was looking about in that way fruitlessly, when I saw that my friend was staring at the ground between us, the top of the grave from which we had, on the instructions of the spirit, of him who leans between the moon and the dog star to speak with men, removed the stones. Okay, so I want to take us back to the Indian names of all the women at Weir's birthday party. Aunt Olivia's was Princess Sun Behind Star. That's a star called Sirius. It can be seen during an eclipse, and it's also known as the dog star. That is a joke name for Aunt Olivia in that moment because she raises dogs. And I, you know, that's a funny joke. We're, since we're making puns this episode, you know, <laughs> that's that's another one. Uh, but so the imagery in this passage also really calls to mind Weir's eulogy for Aunt Olivia, or at least we read it that way. Um, the final words of which are, we go then to find the singer, thinking she will be standing where we last saw her. There are only bones and sand and a few faded rags. So all I really have to say then is that there are clearly some deeper symbolic elements to this story that I don't know if we quite have the tools to, to fully pick apart yet, but hopefully we'll be able to get a handle on some of this stuff before we record our discussion episode on chapter four. Well, I, I think you're you're probably right here, Brandon, that this is something that Weir himself has penned. And so that's the second instance in this chapter in which we have Weir reading something that Gold has forged, a, a, a fictional account written by Gold that's passed off as being legitimate, that Weir has read, and then written some fan fiction about. 
And that's strange. It's also cool, but it's strange. Right. Uh, yeah. What What are we to do with this? Why not give us gold passages directly? Why uh, conflate yourself with gold's project here? It's all uh, very complicated. And that tells me when, when things in Wolf get this complicated, it usually tells me that there's something on the surface that's obvious that I'm missing. <laughs> But uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll be able to to dig that out uh, before next time. But that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha, and I'm Glenn McDorman. If you'd like to support the network and also help us go cover a whole bunch of Sherlock Holmes, also some G.K. Chesterton, we hope that you'll join us on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash Clay Temple Media. Of course, if you do that, you'll also find our bonus episode that we just did on the history of the Necronomicon there, waiting for you right now. Next time, we will be back with a discussion episode. Might be the first of two. Uh, That's a thing that we're all going to find out together, I guess. But uh, (laughs) until then, we greet you and say farewell.